0: THE FIRST WORLD WAR. SELECTIONS FROM THE MANCHESTER GUARDIAN. THIS IS A LIBRIVOX RECORDING. ALL LIBRIVOX RECORDINGS ARE IN THE PUBLIC DOMAIN. FOR MORE INFORMATION OR TO VOLUNTEER VISIT LIBRIVOX.ORG. THIS READING BY CARL MANCHESTER 2007. TUESDAY, AUGUST 18TH, 1914. PROPOSED BATTALION OF MANCHESTER CLERKS AND Warehousemen. THE FOLLOWING IS A COPY OF AN ANNOUNCEMENT THAT MANCHESTER EMPLOYERS ARE BEING ASKED TO SIGN AND POST UP, CALLING UPON EMPLOYEES FOR VOLUNTARY SERVICE. A BATTALION IS BEING RAISED, COMPOSED ENTIRELY OF EMPLOYEES, IN MANCHESTER'S OFFICES AND WAREHOUSES, UPON THE ORDINARY CONDITIONS OF ENLISTMENT IN LORD KITCHENER'S ARMY, NAMELY, FOR THREE YEARS OR THE DURATION OF THE WAR. THE BATTALION WILL BE CLOTHED AND EQUIPPED, excepting ARMS, by a fund being raised for the purpose. We therefore desire to call the attention of all our employees between the ages of 19 and 35 years to the call of Lord Kitchener, which was emphasised by the Prime Minister in the House of Commons, for further recruits, and in order to encourage enlistment, we are prepared to offer all employees enlisting within the next two weeks the following conditions. 1. Four weeks full wages from date of leaving. 2. Re-engagement, on discharge from service, guaranteed. 3. Half pay during absence on duty for married men, from the date that full pay ceases, to be paid to the wife. 4. Special arrangements made for single men who have relatives entirely dependent on them. 5. The above payments only apply to those enlisting in the ranks, and not to anyone who may obtain a commission otherwise than by promotion from the ranks but each case, if any, of those obtaining a commission will be treated on its merits. 6. The above offer is for voluntary service only, and should the Government decide on compulsory training later, the offer will not apply to those affected by such compulsion. Names should be sent to your employer. Recruiting for this battalion will take place at the Artillery Headquarters, Hyde Road, Ardwick, daily from 9am to 6pm. It is hoped that all employers will fall in with the above scheme and do all they can to encourage their employees to enlist. Tuesday August 18th 1914 With the Guns D. H. Lawrence The reservists were leaving for London by the nine o'clock train. They were young men, some of them drunk. There was one bawling and brawling before the ticket-window. There were two swaying on the steps of the subway shouting, and ending, "'Let's go and have another afore we go.' There were a few women seeing off their sweethearts and brothers, but on the whole the reservist had been a lodger in the town, and had only his own pals. One woman stood before the carriage-window. She and her sweetheart were being very matter-of-fact, "'Cheerful and bumptious over the parting. "'Well, so long,' she cried, as the train began to move. "'When you see em, let em have it.' Ay, no fear,' shouted the man, and the train was gone, the man grinning. "'I thought what it would really be like when he saw him.' "'Last autumn I followed the Bavarian army down the Isar valley and near the foot of the Alps,' then I could see what war would be like, an affair entirely of machines, with men attached to the machines as the subordinate part thereof, as the butt is a part of the rifle. I remember standing on a little round hill one August afternoon. There was a beautiful blue sky and white clouds from the mountains. Away on the right, amid woods and corn-clad hills, lay the big Starnberg Lake. This is just a year ago but it seems to belong to some period outside of time. On the crown of the little hill were three quick-firing guns, with the gunners behind. At the side, perched on a tiny platform at the top of a high pair of steps, was an officer looking through a fixed spyglass. A little further behind, lower down the hill, was a group of horses and soldiers. Every moment came the hard, tearing, hideous voice of the German command, From the officer perched aloft, giving the range of the guns, and then the sharp cry, FIRE! There was a burst. Something in the guns started back. The faintest breath of vapour disappeared. The shots had gone. I watched, but I could not see where they had gone, nor what had been aimed at. Evidently, they were directed against an enemy a mile and a half away. "'men unseen by any of the soldiers at the guns. "'Whether the shot they fired hit or missed, "'killed or did not touch, "'I and the gun-party did not know. "'Only the officer was shouting the range again. "'The guns were again starting back. "'We were again staring over the face "'of the green and dappled, inscrutable country "'into which the missiles sped unseen. "'What work was there to do?' only mechanically to adjust the guns and fire the shot. What was there to feel? Only the unnatural suspense and suppression of serving a machine which, for aught we knew, was killing our fellow men, whilst we stood there, blind, without knowledge or participation, subordinate to the cold machine. This was the glamour and the glory of the war. Blue sky overhead, and living green country all around, but we, amid it all, apart in some iron insensate will, our flesh and blood, our soul and intelligence shed away, and all that remained of us a cold metallic adherence to an iron machine. There was neither ferocity, nor joy, nor exultation, nor exhilaration, nor even quick fear, only a mechanical expressionless movement. And this is how the gunner would let him have it. He would mechanically move a certain apparatus when he heard a certain shout. Of the result he would see and know nothing. He had nothing to do with it. Then I remember going at night down a road, whilst the sound of guns thudded continuously, and suddenly I started seeing the bank of the road stir. It was a mass of scarcely visible forms, lying waiting for a rush. They were lying under fire, silent, scarcely stirring, a mass. If one of the shells that were supposed to be coming had dropped among them, it would have burst a hole in the mass. Who would have been torn, killed, no one would have known. There would just have been a hole in the living shadowy mass. That was all. Who it was did not matter. There were no individuals, and every individual soldier knew it. He was a fragment of a mass, and as a fragment of a mass he must live and die, or be torn. He had no rights, no self, no being. There was only the mass lying there, solid and obscure, along the bank of the road in the night. This was how the gunner would let him have it a shell would fall into this mass of vulnerable bodies, there would be a torn hole in the mass. This would be his letting them have it. And I remember a captain of the Bersaglieri, who talked to me in the train in Italy when he had come back from Tripoli. The Italian soldier, he said, was the finest soldier in the world at a rush. But, and he spoke with a certain horror that cramped his voice, "'When it came to lying there under the Snyder fire, you had to stand behind them with a revolver. "'And I saw he could not get beyond the agony of this. "'Well,' I said, "'that is because they cannot feel themselves part of a machine. "'They have all the old natural courage when one rushes at one's enemy. "'But it is unnatural to them to lie still under machine fire. "'It is unnatural to anybody.' WAR WITH MACHINES, AND THE MACHINE PREDOMINANT, IS TOO UNNATURAL FOR AN ITALIAN. IT IS A WICKED THING, A MACHINE, AND YOUR ITALIANS ARE TOO NATURALLY GOOD. THEY WILL DO ANYTHING TO GET AWAY FROM IT. LET US SEE OUR ENEMY, AND GO FOR HIM. BUT WE CANNOT ENDURE THIS TAKING DEATH OUT OF MACHINES, AND GIVING DEATH OUT OF MACHINES, OUR BLOOD COLD, WITHOUT ANY ENEMY TO RISE AGAINST. I remember also standing on a little hill, crowned by a white church. The hill was defended, surrounded by a trench half-way down. In this trench stood the soldiers, side by side, down there in the earth, a great line of them. The night came on. Suddenly on the other side, high up in the darkness, burst a beautiful greenish globe of light and then came into being a magic circle of countryside set in darkness, a greenish jewel of landscape, splendid bulk of trees, a green meadow, vivid. The ball fell and it was dark, and in one's eye remained treasured the little vision that had appeared far off in the darkness. Then again a light ball burst and sloped down. There was the white farmhouse, with the wooden slanting roof, the green apple trees, the orchard paling, a jewel, a landscape set deep in the darkness. It was beautiful beyond belief. Then it was dark. Then the searchlights suddenly sprang upon the countryside, revealing the magic, fingering everything with magic, pushing the darkness aside, showing the lovely hillsides, The sable bulks of trees, the pallor of corn. A searchlight was creeping at us, it slid up our hill, it was upon us. We turned our backs to it, it was unendurable, then it was gone. Then out of a little wood at the foot of the hill came the intolerable crackling and bursting of rifles. The men in the trenches returned fire. Nothing could be seen. I thought of the bullets that would find their marks. But whose bullets, and what mark? Why must I fire off my gun in the darkness towards a noise? Why must a bullet come out of the darkness, breaking a hole in me? But better a bullet than the laceration of a shell, if it came to dying. But what is it all about? I cannot understand. I am not to understand. My God, why am I a man at all, when this is all, this machinery, piercing and tearing? It is a war of artillery, a war of machines, and men no more than the subjective material of the machine. It is so unnatural as to be unthinkable. Yet we must think of it. SATURDAY, NOVEMBER twenty-fifth, 1916 THE DANGER OF INFECTION FROM GERMANS When the question was raised yesterday at the annual meeting in London of the Association of Poor Law Unions as to the source of venereal infections, it was stated that it was well known that Germans were very amenable to the disease by the looseness of their moral code. Germans had, it was argued, a high scientific process to deal with contagion. But, said the Reverend R. T. Tacon, they do not apply that in the channel which is the most important. I have four sons in the army, and I don't want them to be contaminated. I would rather that we could infect the German with good, healthy English blood. He added that the danger of foreign infection was not absent even now, because he knew of Germans employed at an hotel who had now conveniently become Swiss. The meeting decided that it would be no harm to have detention of infected cases, but that the natural disinclination of affected persons to declare their disease rendered the notification condition a negation of the good object in view. The discussion arose out of a letter from the Salford Board of Guardians, calling for the internment of all Germans as a source of infection. Approving the idea, the conference instructed the Executive Council to take all the necessary steps to give effect to this view. Wednesday, December 19th, 1917 A reminder of the need for a Christmas fund. We have a visitor in Manchester. He is staying in Albert Square between the stone figures of John Bright and Bishop Fraser, and hopes to spend a profitable week in this city. The sight of that squat brown guest of ours cannot fail to bring thoughts of the whole family of tanks which far from being fated in an English town, are ploughing their way over the desolate fields of France. Our thoughts go out to the soldiers who are trudging after them to many thousands of these men the thought of this new recruit to warfare, settled comfortably on the flags of our square, will bring very vivid thoughts of home. They will remember the times they waited for cars in that very place, or put their watches right by the town hall clock. They will recollect at once that the Bells used to play Robin Adair or the Minstrel Boy each day at one o'clock, and probably they will wonder if the symbol of conflict in those familiar surroundings, is reminding us at home of the men to whom a tank means something more sinister than a sound bank. By our contributions this week, while our guest is with us, and the fund for the Lancashire and Cheshire battalions at the front is still open, we can prove our thoughts for them. Contributors are asked carefully to note, all contributions, whether of articles or money, should be sent to the Manchester Guardian offices, three Cross Street, Manchester. Payment should be made by cheques or postal orders, which should be made payable to the Manchester Guardian Limited, and crossed. The name and address of the sender, and the character of the articles within, should be marked on the outside of each parcel. The articles asked for: cigarettes, cigarette papers, Tobacco, Shag Tobacco, Pipes, Clay and Briar, Tobacco Pouches, Pipe Lighters, Matches, Candles, Mufflers, Socks, Mittens, Gloves, Sleeveless Sweaters, Shirts, Singlets, Boot Laces, Balaclava Caps, Bachelors Buttons, Mackintosh Capes, Handkerchiefs, Soap, Shaving Soap, Safety Razors, Nail Scissors, Boot Polish, Black, toothbrushes, boot brushes, safety pins, antifrost bite grease, insect powder, combination knife, fork and spoon, needles, sewing cotton, biscuits, chocolate, peppermints, tinned meats and fish, sweets, café au lait, writing pads, writing paper, envelopes, pencils, mouth organs, gramophones, gramophone records, indoor games, footballs, Magazines and other reading matter, steel mirrors, toothpaste, pipe cleaners, and tinned milk. Wednesday, December nineteen 1920. The Pity of War. C.P. Poems by Wilfred Owen. London, Chateau and Windus. 33 pages, 6 shillings net. Lieutenant Wilfred Owen, M.C., an officer of the Manchester Regiment, was killed in action on the Sambre Canal a week before the armistice, aged twenty-five. The twenty-three poems of his collection are the fruit of not quite two years' active service, less than half of it in the field, but they are enough to rank him among the very few war poets whose work has more than a passing value. Others have shown the disenchantment of war, have unlegended the rose light and romance of it, but none with such compassion for the disenchanted, or such sternly just and justly stern judgment on the idolizers. To him, the sight and sound of a man gassed suffice to give the lie to Dulce at decorum and the rest of it. The atrophy that he damns is not that of the men who fought. Having seen all things red, the eyes are rid of the hurt of the colour of blood for ever. It is the atrophy of those who, quote, by choice, make themselves immune from whatever shares the eternal reciprocity of tears. If he glorifies the soldier, and he does gloriously, it is as victim, not as victor. NOT AS THE HERO ACHIEVING, BUT AS ONE WHOSE SACRIFICIAL LOVE PASSES THE LOVE OF WOMEN. O LOVE, YOUR EYES LOSE LURE, WHEN I BEHOLD EYES BLINDED IN MY STEAD. HEART, YOU WERE NEVER HOT, NOR LARGE, NOR FULL LIKE HEARTS MADE GREAT WITH SHOT, AND THOUGH YOUR HAND BE PALE, PALER ARE ALL WHICH TRAIL YOUR CROSS THROUGH FLAME AND HAIL. Weep, you may weep, for you may touch them not. His verse, as he says in his preface, is all of the pity of war, and, quote, except in the pity, end quote, there is no poetry. But it is a heroic exception, for the pity gets itself into poetry in phrases which are not the elegant chasing of ineffectual silver, BUT THE VITAL, UNBEAUTIFUL BEAUTY OF UNWASHED GOLD. IT IS THE POETRY OF PAIN, SEARING AND PIERCING TO PITY. IT IS THE POETRY OF THE TRAGIC MUSE, WHOSE visage, THOUGH, QUOTE, MARRED MORE THAN ANY MAN, END QUOTE, IS YET TRANSFIGURED IN THE SORROW OF SONG. HE HAS REVEALED THE SOUL OF THE SOLDIER, AS NO ONE ELSE HAS REVEALED IT, not because his vision of the externals was less vivid and cleaving, but because, to that vision, he added an imagination of the heart that made him sure of his values. Except you share, with them in hell, the sorrowful dark of hell, whose world is but the trembling of a flare, and heaven but the highway for a shell. You shall not hear their mirth, you shall not come to think them well content, by any jest of mind, these men are worth your tears, you are not worth their merriment. Irony his poetry has, and grim humour, but the spirit of the pities always breathes through the humour and the irony, and keeps their bitterness sweet. Sometimes, as in mental cases, the pain is too poignant even for pity. AND MOVES ONLY TO THE ANGER OF DESPAIR, BUT MORE OFTEN THE ANGER GIVES PLACE TO A BENEFICENT IMPULSE, AS IN STRANGE MEETING, THE FIRST AND ONE OF THE FINEST OF HIS POEMS. THEN WHEN MUCH BLOOD HAD CLOGGED THEIR CHARIOT-Wheels, I WOULD GO AND WASH THEM FROM SWEET WELLS, EVEN WITH TRUTHS THAT LIE TOO DEEP FOR TAINT. This poem happens also to be a good example of technical innovation that is rather puzzling. Enough has been quoted to show that Owen uses traditional metres and rhymes, but as here he also uses, and uses throughout the poem, a device which is neither rhyme nor assonance. It is not assonance, because the vowels are different, and in any case it could not be rhyme, because the initial consonants are alike, spoiled, spilled. Laughed, left, grained, ground. It looks like a subtly contrived escape from tonal completeness, a calculated deflection from the kindred points of heaven and home which are rhymes, lest the musical significance should soften the conscious starkness of his treatment. But the result gain is more than doubtful. The thing affects you as the baffling elusiveness of a fugitive pun, or the half-foiled meeting of two stanzas, of a sestina, and just because of the baffling and the foiling it fails in its artistic purpose. It is significant that it is not used in his greatest poems, such as Apologia pro poemati mio, and Greater Love, and one cannot help feeling that, fine as it is, strange meeting, would have been finer without it. This trick apart, Owen uses words with the poet's questioning instinct for the heart of things, and his homing instinct for the heart of man. His work will not easily die. End of the First World War. Selections from the Manchester Guardian.